What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. This is Wilmington's Morning News with Nick Craig. Wilmington's Morning News. You can now listen to 107.9 and 980 The Wave on HD Radio. It's really simple. If you've got a car with high-definition radio built in, simply tune to 1027 WGNI. Wait a few seconds for the HD to click in and switch on over to 102.7 HD2. You'll hear Cape Fear's News Talk and Sports 107.9 and 980 The Wave in the clearest fidelity possible in a very large signal pattern here across southeastern North Carolina. Give it a chance today if you've got a new vehicle with an HD radio. It's 1027 HD2. Infrastructure and utilities is something that is a very big conversation across the entire United States. And you probably weren't aware, I wasn't until just a few days ago, that there was a massive issue right around Christmas in Asheville, out in the mountains, with their water system. Well, at a January the 24th meeting of the Asheville City Council, appointed members to a new independent review committee in the wake of a massive water system failure last month left that left much of the service area without water during the holiday season. There, it happened on December the 24th. That's when several water treatment plants in Asheville began to experience issues with outages. And that, that occurred all the way from December the 24th up until January the 1st. So from Christmas Eve all the way until the new year. It's a huge, huge problem. The water system outages left thousands of residents without water for more than a week as the Asheville mayor referred to the outage as a, quote, unprecedented crisis at a news conference that took place on December the 30th when the system was in the process of being restored. But such issues with Asheville's water system could have been, avo- could have been avoided, according to some critics. Had the water revenue funds been used properly for infrastructure and repairs instead of on other projects or of an independent water system plan passed by the General Assembly, well, things could have been different. And this comes back to something that is very, very important with infrastructure and in government. You know, whenever there's a problem, case in point, look at the issue with the FAA. A couple of weeks ago where they had to, um, you know, they, they, their NOTAM system went down, all, all hell broke loose, all these planes are grounded, it's just a disaster. What is the first thing they say? Well, we need more money. We need more money. We need more money. The FAA had an 11.9 billion with a B dollar budget in 2022. They had an $11.4 billion budget in 2021. 
and an $11 billion budget in 2020. So why is it that within the normal budgetary cycle that money can't be allocated to do upgrades and improvements? This is not just an issue with water utilities. This is not just an issue with the FAA. This is nearly every facet of government. And if you own a business, small business, let's say you, uh, let's say you own a, a pizza shop, but you actually own the building. You're not renting it. You own the building. You own the pizza shop. If you have a wood fire oven or a gas oven or some sort of pizza stove in your facility, you got to make sure that thing's up and operational. Throughout the years, because you're not obviously not buying one every year, these things run for dozens and dozens of years, but throughout the years, if you know, and hey, five or six years, now this thing's kind of on the fritz, I'm probably going to need to get a new uh, pizza oven in here. Maybe you set a couple of bucks aside every month to plan for that, for that upgrade, to plan for that expense. That's how small businesses operate it. You can't wait until the pizza oven breaks, then go to your clientele and say, hey, that uh, $1.50 slice is now $8 because we need to buy a new pizza oven. That's not how, that's not how business can operate. However, it's seemingly that's how government operates every time. Instead of using the money, Instead of using the resources that are available and allocating funds and cutting from one place and reallocating from one place to another to make improvements and changes, it's just, well, we need more money. And that, according to experts, that is exactly what happened out in Asheville. Our friends over at the Carolina Journal spoke with former North Carolina House Representative Republican Chuck McGrady, who discussed his views on the water system problem as well as efforts he took fixing them during his tenure in the General Assembly. McGrady said that the complications have been occurring for years, and he took issue with Asheville's handling of funds meant to support the system's infrastructure. Well, that's a huge red flag right there. It's a huge red flag. He said back in 2003, there was an authority to deal with water between Buncombe County and the city of Asheville. And that resulted in them being allowed to take some of the water revenues and distribute them either to the county or city. Meaning those revenues weren't being considered, uh, weren't being consistently put back to fund repairs of infrastructures or replacement of infrastructures. The real problem is you have to maintain these systems. It's not just about pulling the revenue in. You need to pull the revenue in, bank some of it, because you know you're going to need to replace those pipes, and you know you're going to need to do in, uh, infrastructure improvements over time. It's exactly it. If you are a homeowner, let's shift away from our pizza shop analogy. You're a homeowner. You know you're going to need to buy a new fridge. You probably save a couple, and, and you're, oh, my fridge is acting a little funny. Yeah, I'm probably going to have to get a new one. Oh, maybe you uh, second guess a couple of things you were going to spend some money on, and you, um, and you decide that you're going to save a couple of bucks so that when you need to go get your new fridge, you have the extra money to do it. Again, really not that complicated. It's pretty much how you and I live every day. You know, live our lives day to day in and day out. If you need new tires for your car, you know, sale and so forth. You save money. You don't you don't spend it in one place so that you can use it in another. It's it's not that complicated of a procedure. 
but for government, it is damn near impossible. McGrady said there are two things that led to the current Asheville water crisis. The first is that the city wasn't doing enough to repair and improve the system, and the other is that a large portion of those served by the water system don't actually live in Asheville, so they can't vote to make changes to the city-run system. He said around 40% of the users of the Asheville system don't live within the city limits. Therefore, if they have water problems, they don't really have anywhere to go. These municipal systems are not regulated in the same way that private water companies would be. So they don't have the option of voting out the mayor or voting out the council if they're not providing good water or enough water. 40% of those utility, uh, utility customers have no recourse here when there are problems. And I think that's a serious issue. Back in 2013, Chuck McGrady previously helped craft House Bill 488, which was aimed at fixing Asheville's water system infrastructure. Along with fellow Republican State Senator Tom uh, Tim Moffitt, the Republican out of Hendersonville up there in the Asheville area, who was a state House member at the time, and former House Rep Nathan Ramsey. McGrady said, Tim and I put forward legislation along with Representative Nathan Ramsey to take various pieces of water and sewer infrastructure and combine them into a metropolitan sewer district. The goal was to repurpose it to be an independent authority and ensure that money was used wisely in terms of making investments and in, in terms of infrastructure. You had a similar thing here in Wilmington not that long ago. You know, for a period of, well, not for a period of time, up until just a few short years ago, the city of Wilmington had a different water utility than, Cape, than the rest of the county. Right? CFPUA was the county's water system. The city had their own. Now, they combined forces back, uh, probably more than, but maybe a decade or so ago, I think, combined those resources together and now... Everybody in the region here gets their water from CFPUA. That's the process. That's how it works. The legislation was ultimately ruled unconstitutional in 2016 by the majority Democrat North Carolina Supreme Court. So you can thank again Democrats for providing you unsafe and uh, not clean and not reliable drinking water, like the same thing they're trying to do with energy. And after a multi-year battle, the city of Asheville maintained control of their system but now more than six years after the democrats made that decision on the supreme court mcgrady and others who fought for an independent authority believe maintaining the system's quota played a big part in the current crisis mcgrady said the city of asheville challenged the law which would have combined the city's water system and the region's sewer system with Henderson County's sewer system to create a regional water and sewer system. The Supreme Court, in my opinion, incorrectly determined that that legislation was unconstitutional, so nothing happened. The consolidation did not go forward. When asked whether the law could possibly be reinstated, McGrady doesn't believe it is feasible to do so, even with the newly elected Republican majority on the state's highest court. He said, I don't think it's that easy to do, unlike with the redistricting decision or voter ID where the legislature has weighed into the issue again. The legislature hasn't weighed into this issue again. One would have to begin and make a whole new case for it. 
Among some of the agenda items covered during the city council meeting on January the 24th in Asheville, the city council passed a motion naming residential water customer Michelle Ashley, a commercial water customer, uh, Carolyn Roy, communications professional, Mike McGill, who's from our area, and Rob Breesley and public water system subject matter experts to the independent review committee. The goal of the committee, according to the Asheville City Mayor, is to, quote, provide a comprehensive account of the water outage, assess operational and emergency responses, communication efforts, and recommend infrastructure and procedural enhancements. That's pretty rich. In a statement provided to Carolina Journal, the mayor said that she's optimistic that the city will be able to effectively handle any further issues with the water system and provide quality service to the customers. She said, while we deeply regret the interruption of service and inconvenience in our community members impacted by the recent water incident in the city of Asheville. Yeah, I mean, it's only not having water between Christmas and New Year's. I mean, what's the big deal? The experience helped identify potential vulnerabilities in our water infrastructure and communication process in a crisis. We as the city welcome the lessons learned as our top priority remains providing the city of Asheville water resource customers with clean, safe, and readily accessible water, which they are obviously not doing. The last part they're not doing at all. On the establishment of the review committee, McGrady believes it is a short-term solution that poses no long-term benefit. He said, it won't do anything long term. I certainly don't have any problem with the idea that you have a committee to look at what happened and make recommendations going forward. But it sounds like they learned a lot based on the prior council meeting, that there were serious communication issues here with customers. Ultimately, the solution is that if you screw up, there should be consequences. That's why we're trying to help the 40% of residents who don't have any recourse. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't aware of this situation in Asheville uh, up until earlier this week when I caught this story. Um, I, I just there was so much other stuff going on. I think the Duke energy power outages that were taking place around the same time kind of usurped this in the news cycle. But this goes to show you that once again, once again, government left unchecked, no recourse available for citizens. And no accountability leads to unmitigated disasters. And folks, this isn't the first time we've heard a story like this. I've got pulled up on my um, news, on my uh, computer here this morning. Remember back to August, when in Jackson, Mississippi, the capital of the state, more than 150,000 people were without drinking water because of a major issue within their water system and it's the same tale down there for years people have been blowing the whistle and raising concerns surrounding their water system been yelling and screaming about infrastructure and they've been ignored funds were not properly put back into these utilities to keep them up to date and that is such a shame and the solution is what to come back to the taxpayer to come back to the rate payer and jack up their rates? It's nonsense. If you can't maintain the infrastructure, then get out of the business. I, I mean, it's not, I, to me, it's not that complicated. Every 
entity besides the government has to reinvest in infrastructure. Literally every, literally every industry. But never the government. From the tippity top at the federal government all the way down to your local municipality. They never do. It's wait until it is an absolute disaster or a crisis has taken place till then we decide that we're going to do something about it. That is a cultural issue that has to change within government. We need to encourage our elected officials, our elected leaders, our mayors, our city council members, our county commissioners, our governors, our, our state legislative reps. We've got to encourage them to change their thinking about how they handle long-term infrastructure. They ha- we have to. It's the only option. Because these, you, you think these stories are one-offs. They're not. These things are happening all across the United States. They're happening all over the place. Our infrastructure is so important. And if government is not willing to allocate money correctly, if government is not willing to keep those pieces of infrastructure, critical infrastructure, folks, talking about water. If they're not capable of putting that money back into those systems to keep them operational, then what, what, good are they, what good are they providing? What good are they doing? And again, this is not something new. This is a tale as old as time. The government is incapable of investing. Just completely incapable. They have to spend every single dime that they have. And then when they need more, it's you and I that are left with the bill. So uh, we'll wait and see what comes of this situation in Asheville. Unfortunately, I share some of the same concerns as former House Rep Chuck McGrady that I, you know, you can put together a committee, you can talk about it, you can appoint a special this or a special that. And the reality is if you're not taking it seriously and you're not, in, and you're not investing in infrastructure, really nothing's going to change. 910-763-4000, that's our phone number. Bruce is texting in the program this morning at 910-763-4000. He says, you know, you take a look at this. The gas tax is misappropriated. Social security deductions misappropriated. Of course. Of course, Bruce. That's exactly how it is. That's, that's always how this goes. And it comes back to the idea, and it's something that I just can't wrap my head around, is why government is completely enabled to cut back on cut back on expenditures, slash things when they need to, and make strong and smart fiscal decisions. That's again, I go back to just my life. Just a single guy. If I can't make my mortgage payment, I probably can't afford to go on an all-inclusive uh, vacation to Cancun. If I can't afford my mortgage payment, I probably shouldn't be going out every single weekend and, and going out to dinner and drinking and doing all that stuff. It's just, like, see, that, that's, those are the decisions I have to make because I can't have both. Uh, in a, I couldn't have both. But right? if, I'm, if I'm short on cash, I got to set my priorities. Government doesn't seem to have priorities. Their priority is just, well, they do have priorities. Their priorities is more and more and more and more money and more and more and more and more power. Which leads to these situations where you now have crippling infrastructure. It's not just water and 
sewer utilities. Look at what's going on with the DOT. We've got a situation unfolding here with the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge, and there's seemingly no solution going forward with that either. Stick with us. More Wilmington's morning news after this. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Let's get into season four, episode three, Facade. People get picked on. I got picked on. But Scabby Abby, Scabby at the whole school. Yeah, just I hurt me. I felt like it wasn't real. If I may, I want to defend the storytellers. The people who created this show wanted you to feel like these people were the worst people ever. They pretty much said the whole school of Smallville High are bad people. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. You can text or call in this morning at 910-763-4000. That's 910-763-4000. We know how popular and successful the brand new Live Oak Bank Pavilion has been in downtown Wilmington in the uh, north end. And then, of course, Greenfield Lake Amphitheater. They've seen a big boost over the last couple of years, that being Greenfield Lake, Live Oak Bank only opened a few years. In the amount of shows that have come through, the city council recently passed an ordinance to allow more shows and more bookings per year. But there's been some questions about the genres of music, as it does appear that many of the shows that are rolling through southeastern North Carolina fall in a couple of genres. Well, our friend Michael Pratt's over at WECT News did some digging into this, and he joins us here this morning. Uh, Michael, there's not a whole lot of diversity with at least some of the music coming to uh, Live Oak Bank Pavilion. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Nick. And uh, no, you're right. There's there's really not. And that's what uh, that's kind of what prompted this story and prompted me to look into this. I was talking with uh, with some people about the different shows that come through. And it's something we've noticed. Uh, just my friends and I have noticed over the past few years since I've been here about six years now. And overwhelmingly we see a lot of indie rock music and country music which just to be very clear to you know the listeners uh i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that and nobody i talked to uh had any issues with bringing these types of bands here but when you look at the lack of variety we're talking uh metal hard rock uh even pop music r&b hip-hop jazz all sorts of different genres are really left out. Uh, I think there was maybe one R&B show last year that Live Nation brought, uh, which was Maxwell. Uh, and then in terms of, you know, harder, heavier rock, there really wasn't a whole lot of options for people. Uh, we saw a lot of bands, uh, you know, obviously Widespread Panic kicked, uh, kicked things off with their three-day show. Uh, they've done that two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and my guess is they would probably be coming back. It seems to be something they like to do. Um, but yeah, so looking at it, we, I broke down the numbers and I don't have them off the top of my head. Uh, but last year there were about 26 shows that came through and more than half of them fell into that indie rock jam band and country category. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's interesting you know you you note a couple of things there, and especially on the rock side of it. I think you know, I, I saw like Chicago may have been the hardest rock band that came through uh, last year, which they're not hard rock by any stretch of the the imagination. And I you know I, I think it's important to, to note, Michael, when you look at this, you know, Live Oak Bank Pavilion will hold about I think it's seventy two or seventy three hundred people, so it's a very large venue. But then Greenfield Lake, you know, if it's a smaller act, twelve fifteen hundred people there, so you've got two very different 
sized venues and presumably you would be able to squeeze in if it's a much smaller act over at Greenfield Lake or if it's a you know a semi well-known group over at uh, Live Oak Bank Pavilion. Yeah, exactly. And you have to look in uh there's there's several things that go into booking a show and I am not a concert promoter so I can't speak to all of the logistics but you have to imagine first um yes, you do have the the size of the bands that can play Obviously, bands like uh, Mayor Bill Sappho wants to see Red Hot Chili Peppers here. Um, well, they will sell out the uh, Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte. You know, a, a, an NFL stadium sells out. So bringing a band of that caliber here will take some convincing and probably high ticket prices that really won't be, uh, won't be able to be sold to the general public, so to speak. Um, because even now, you know, after you get your fees and taxes in with concert tickets, uh, you know, a, a general admission $35 pass turns out to be 65 or 70 Uh So if you want to see a massive band like that, logistically, it might not make sense to bring them here because could be talking, you know, upwards of 300 bucks a ticket. Oh, if not uh, more than that. I mean, when they play at Bank of America Stadium, which holds 75,000 people, those tickets are three or $400. You'd be talking about like five grand to see them here. It's just such a small venue, um, which is tough. It's yeah. it's tough, but it's, you know, Michael, it's just not that big of a venue. And if you're the Red Hot Chili Peppers or another big band, you know, Kiss, Metallica, whatever it might be, you could sell 7,500 tickets in Wilmington or 75,000 in Charlotte. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you do have to take that into account. And there were people, you know, in the comment section saying, you know, uh, Live Nation is obviously the, the concert promoter here. They book all the acts now that they have that deal. Um, and yes, they they sell what they know. They book what they know they can sell, which is obviously a good business decision. Um, but again, there's that lack of diversity. And you look at places like Red Hat, uh, Red Hat Amphitheater in Raleigh, which is uh, about 1,300 feet smaller than what we have here. And, you know, I personally went to several shows up there last year, saw Nine Inch Nails, Goo Goo Dolls, Blue October, a lot of, uh, you know, you cross into that pop genre, you cross into the little heavier rock uh, industrial act with Nine Inch Nails. They had, uh, you know, some hip hop and R&B and we're just not seeing that variety here, um, which, you know, leads to the question as to why. And, you know, when you use the word diversity, people might get some preconceived notions, but we're talking about all genres here. Um, and really, it just seems that they, it, it doesn't just seem they are. Um, so far, the shows we have seen are overwhelmingly pointed towards these, you know, these couple genres and leaving some folks out. Um, and while the argument, yes, the, the venue is smaller than, uh, you know, PNC even, which is, you know, 20,000 plus, um, it's still, you know, there's still bands they could get and bring here. Mm. Um, and I talked with several people from across, you know, Wilmington, across the communities here. Uh, I talked with Big B over at Coast 97.3, a radio personality there. I talked with Randy Slack at Modern Rock. Um, I talked with Mayor Sappho and then Kevin Spears and everybody. And this is kind of interesting. I typically don't have a whole lot of people who agree on everything in my story. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is one of those rare instances where nobody was upset. Um, but most people were in agreement that, yeah, we could be seeing some more things here. And the fact is the taxpayers paid 
for the Live Oak Bank Pavilion, which is really at the heart of this. But we do have Greenfield Lake. Uh, but again, that's a 1,100 or whatever, you know, less than 2,000 seat venue. Um, but taxpayers paying for this venue that Live Nation and the city are making good money off of, I think everybody wants it to be successful. Um, it's bringing big acts to town. Um, but when everybody pays for a venue of this magnitude, uh, not having something that appeals to everyone is where the concerns come in. And, you know, Kevin Spears, Councilman Kevin Spears, had a really good point. And he said, we don't want people to say, you know, after two, two years of concert seasons here, um, going into our third, you know, a Live Oak Bank Pavilion is not for me because they might write that off and just not even consider going to shows here, which is obviously bad because when people have to leave, go to Raleigh, go to Charlotte, uh, wherever they might have to go to see some of these bands, uh, they're not spending their money here, and it's not boosting the local economy. So even if you aren't a concert goer, you don't really care for live music, uh, at the pure business and economic impact of all these things, uh, it is leaving out a big base of uh, an audience and fan base that would otherwise be more than happy to spend their money here uh, that have to drive out of town. Michael Pratt with WECT News is our guest here this morning. And, Michael, you brought up something interesting I took away from your story. And you mentioned the uh, Red Hat Amphitheater in Raleigh, which, by the way, is a beautiful venue. And you noted smaller than, um, than, than Live Oak Bank Pavilion. You think that there's a geographical problem where, you know, bands, you know, they play you know, multiple nights in a row. And because Wilmington, that's not that far off the beaten path, but if you can play on in Raleigh and stay on 95 or come two and a half hours towards the coast, do you think geographically it makes it challenging if you're going to be in another big city the next night to come so far to the east and literally be on the ocean? You think that's part of it? Yeah, I'm sure that plays a role. And you know, I think it does pose problems, but in the same breath, after talking with, uh, I spoke with someone at Live Nation, they didn't want to go on the record. They did give me a statement, but uh, Wilmington has something really, really special with both of our venues that acts are willing to go out of their way from what I've been told and from what the feedback has been from these bands is that they love the, the setting, the venue. You really don't have venues like this to really across the state here. Uh, Red Hat is a great venue, but it is downtown Raleigh. It's, you know, surrounded by parking garages and apartments, mm -hmm. um, which is fine, but it's just a different vibe, a different feel. Um, so, yes, there's the geographic issues, but it also can play a positive effect um, in getting bands here from what I've been told. So, yes, it plays a role, but that is something that I think can be overcome and then you obviously have the issue of um you know where logistics you have to take into account the the geographic range for where these bands are going um you know obviously if that's being cleveland ohio you know the next night playing wilmington is way off the beaten path um and raleigh might be a little bit too close for them to make that trip down here as well um so yes it play it definitely factors into it well, and I'm sure, you know, it, it is a new venue. And I know, obviously, Live Nation 
their, their goal is to sell as many tickets as possible. That's how they, they you know, take you to the cleaners with their ticket fees and everything else. So obviously they want as many bands here as, as possible. I, just, I wonder if it's the newness, too, of it, Michael, you've got promoters that maybe they haven't seen a show down here yet, and maybe they're just a little hesitant. And I guess maybe if they traveled down here or saw a show or heard from another promoter that, wow, you know, we played at Wilmington and it was great, maybe just over time that will just happen itself, hopefully. Yeah, and I mean, look at what, what they've already announced here, um, you know, this upcoming season. We just got the, the word that Incubus was playing with Coheed and Cambria, which are yeah. uh, two more mainstream, if not a little less mainstream for Coheed and Cambria, uh, alt rock, a little bit heavier. Uh, so that, you know, signs are pointing towards that is the way that things could be going. And after talking with the mayor and talking with city councilman, Kevin Spears, um, you know, they, the city doesn't have a whole lot of say in who picks the act, which again, Live Nation rents it, rents the amphitheaters, uh, pays the city. It is a private business. They are allowed to bring whoever they want. That said, uh, Mayor Sappho said he is very, uh, he has a great relationship. City, the city in general has a great relationship with Live Nation. They take all their advice into consideration. And this is something they're going to be working on move, uh, moving forward here and talking with Live Nation to say, hey, what can we do to make sure that all these audiences are covered and don't, at the end of the day, make sure people don't have to leave the Cape Fear region as a whole because, you know, we are drawing in from Jacksonville all the way down to Sunset Beach um, and a little bit further west. So what can we do to draw these people here as opposed to get them out of town? And I think everybody kind of agrees uh, economically and for an equity standpoint, uh, it makes sense. So I think we could see some changes. And I, I've already noticed that with the announcement of Incubus, as you mentioned, I mean, Chicago, uh, we had REO Speedwagon, Black Crows, you know, all good music in their own right. But they're not exactly heavy rock bands. It's not what you Ario no. Speedwagon doesn't come to mind when you think of a rock band. Really. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. This, uh, Saturdays in the Park is not my uh, headbanging gym uh, track. It just doesn't, it doesn't make its way into the playlist. Yeah, exactly. So it, it looks like we could be seeing some acts that are bringing in a little bit more for everybody. Uh, and that includes, you know, the, the R&B, the hip-hop acts. One of the big problems that we'll note with bringing in these hip-hop acts uh, is they are... I looked at the Billboard Top 100 artists of the past year. Um, I believe it was 40 to 41 of those acts were rappers uh, or hip-hop acts, and that doesn't include R&B or um, you know jazz, blues, things like that. We're talking purely just hip-hop and rap. 41 of those artists fell into that category, which means those artists can sell these PNC arenas. They can yeah. sell stadium shows, which, again, they're this is a business decision and you, you know 75,000 like you were saying or 20 22,000 at PNC uh it makes more sense to get those very popular bands into those venues where a lot more people can attend yeah and you look at some of the names you talk about Chicago and Ario Speedwagon Michael those bands wouldn't have if let's say the venue was here 30 years ago they wouldn't have been able to come here they were too popular right they it's too too small of a venue you look at Incubus they're a 90s grunge band right they're not burning up the the Billboard top 100s and that that's part of the problem is you you if you're as hot of an act as you can be again 
are you going to sell out Live Oak Bank Pavilion or are you going to send out PNC or uh, Bank of America or, or just another venue? It's it's like you almost need to wait for the down for them to be on the downside of their career for them to come to these smaller venues, which makes sense at 71 or 7,200 tickets. Yeah, exactly. And there was one other thing I did want to mention about that in particular that uh, Mayor Sappo had mentioned to me, which was uh, really interesting that I hadn't thought about. You know, widespread panic, as I mentioned, yeah. uh, does the three-day you know, very short residency here for three days, you can have bigger acts that would maybe sell PNC Arena uh, play three nights in a row here, and they still get the money for 20, you know, seven times three, 21,000 people uh, could come in here. And, you know, they they could make the ticket sales that way. And yes, they do have to spend three days playing uh, the same venue. But again, a lot of these acts are saying, hey, I want to spend a week in Wilmington anyways. Let's go ahead and do that. So that's where we could potentially see, uh, you know, some bigger acts that they pick up two or three nights, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, You could potentially see some bigger acts covering the same amount of tickets um, and just playing a few extra shows. Yeah, you know, saw Grizz has done that as well. So it's it's been interesting to see down here at the uh, Live Oak Bank Pavilion. Michael Pratt's our guest this morning. He is an investigative journalist over at our friends at WECT News. Michael, a phenomenal story. I'm glad you didn't get beaten up on this one. Most of your stories, uh, somebody is upset with something that you wrote. So I guess it's uh, nice every once in a while to have a story that everybody can agree on, that we need some more variety of acts here. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was very nice, and uh, yeah, I think I think we kind of covered everything. So I appreciate the uh, the time and the attention on this. Well, absolutely appreciate your uh, the story. Appreciate your time this morning. Great work as always. I'm Michael Pratt's of WECT News. We'll catch up with you soon. All right, take care. Bye. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Michael Pratt's joining us here uh, this morning. It's a very interesting topic, and I mean, I'm looking at the upcoming events for this year. It's the, all that's announced so far, it's country, country, rock, and incubus. Country, reggae, country, country. And, you know, here's the thing. Country is real hot right now. It's a hot, it's a, a hot genre. So you know, it kind of makes sense. But there definitely is not. I mean, there's not been a single heavier rock band. Incubus will be it when they play here on uh, Tuesday, May the 23rd. You have any thoughts or comments on this whole situation with the uh, music variety or maybe lack thereof at Live Oak Bank Pavilion? Give us a call at 910-763-4000. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. 910-763-4000 is our phone number. Jeff's hanging on the line this morning. Jeff, you're on the air. We've got about two minutes. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, this dude is completely off the mark. Uh, this is why we don't build private venues when you're the, 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 the government. It's not their job to provide entertainment for us. I'm mm-hmm. a hard rock guy, okay? Likewise. I, I, go tra- I travel around if I want to go see a kind. It's not their, it's not their problem to come to, to Wilmington or where, wherever in order to provide me with a concert. That's not their problem at all. Well, I don't, I don't and the think fact it's... that a lot of people like country is fine. I don't like, I don't go to country concerts. I went and saw Pat Benatar over at the Wilson Center. It was great. All right, not a problem. But this is not a problem that the government should have any interest in at all. Oh, I agree with that. To, yeah, I mean, uh, to, okay. Yeah, to the point that the city is advocating that I couldn't agree with more. I don't think they have any. They don't have any business being in that at all. However, I will say I would make the argument, and I did then, and I still will, that the city had no business being in this in the first place with the venue. Uh, that in itself is a huge problem, and it unfortunately puts the city on the hook for some of these complaints because, as Michael noted, it's a taxpayer-funded venue. I mean, they they put themselves in this situation, unfortunately. Sure, and the other thing too is, I mean, 
you know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to break. I mean, they know the business. I don't know their business. I don't yeah. have a clue as far as how the concert business goes. I just go out, I go see Metallica and Iron Maiden and stuff like that. But that's not, you know, again, they're making business decisions. They don't, they don't worry about what the, the city comes. And the reality is, is a lot of these acts are kind of, you know, they're way past when they were big and they come yeah. to a small well, venue have to like this. Because they have yeah. to be past their prime. And that's why when you look at the, 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 the concerts coming up this year, you've got the Incubus show. The Incubus was huge in the 90s, that grunge era out of Seattle. But they're not anymore. I mean, people aren't beating down the doors to see Incubus. They'll probably sell out the show. It'll probably be a great, great show. They're just past their prime, which is good. means they can sell tickets to a 71 or 7,200 person. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. Sebastian Maniscalco. I'm a comedian. In my 20s, I was in, like, in a company. And I don't know, like, how marketing, sales. Yeah, you're a brand. You're a company. Yeah. And like Jay-Z says, I'm a businessman. Yeah. Yeah. To that. Remind me not to quote any hip-hop lyrics again. That was just a big miss. <laughs> when you first said it, I'm like, yeah, he's a businessman. Yeah, I nailed it at the end. I pulled it together. It just took me a minute. The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Venue. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. My name is Nick Craig. It's great to have you alongside this morning. You can text or call into the program at 910-763-4000. We know coming off of the November midterm elections, Republicans now having control in the U.S. House to hold back and build a little bit of a firewall between the American people and the disastrous policies out of the Biden administration. One of those individuals, part of that firewall, is our congressman, Congressman David Rouser. He joins us this morning. Congressman Rouser, good morning, sir. Hope you're doing well. Well, good to be with you. Hope you are as well. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the Water Resources and Environmental Subcommittee that you were named the chairman of last week. Uh, so that's a subcommittee on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. I've been on uh, the P&I Committee, that's uh, the short name for it. I've been on that committee since day one, as well as the House Agriculture Committee uh, since day one. And uh, so I have chaired um, uh, both uh, a subcommittee on the House Agriculture Committee uh, my first two terms. And then uh, last Congress, I moved over, uh, or I technically didn't move over, but I decided to uh, head up and was asked to uh, head up the um, uh, Republican effort on the Water and Environment uh, uh, Subcommittee for uh, T&I. Uh, so now that we have the majority, uh, the chairman came to me and gave me a, a couple different options uh, if I wanted to pursue them, and I told him I'd prefer to stay on Water and Environment uh, and, and serve as its chairman. Uh, so I serve at the pleasure of the chairman of the full committee and uh, very honored and Grateful to have this opportunity. Um, the Water and Resource Subcommittee, Water and Environment uh, Subcommittee, uh, really does uh, have a lot of influence uh, on uh, all those uh, aspects of uh, quality of life uh, for southeastern North Carolina. Uh, we have uh, direct jurisdiction over the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, which plays heavy uh, as it relates to uh, those beaches that are federally authorized for uh, beach nourishment. And, of course, uh, dredging of inlets and waterways, uh, as well as uh, flood mitigation uh, efforts that uh, we've been working on, particularly the last two years. 
when I served as the ranking member of the uh, subcommittee. So really, this is the, the next two years, this year and next year, are going to be a real opportunity for me to build on uh, some of the successes we had the previous two years when I served as ranking member. Uh, the TNI committee is a great committee, has a wide range of jurisdiction on almost all aspects of the economy, if you think about it, uh, aviation, uh, rail, highways, water, uh, you name it, um, anything uh, that touches uh, commerce in the United States uh, uh, more or less goes through the TNI committee. Well, based on some of the uh, recent issues in areas like aviation, uh, hopefully there'll be some interesting things coming out of uh, coming out of that committee. Uh, Congressman Rouse, I have to ask, you know, we, we see all these ads on television and this idea that Republicans don't care about clean air, or clean drinking water. Um, that doesn't seem to really add up at all, does it? <laughs> no, well, it's just a lie. Uh, you know, it's uh, and and I think the American people, uh, particularly those who have followed politics for a long time, uh, they they can sort through the truth versus uh, the non-truth. And uh, and of course, there's a lot of that that gets magnified during the course of, of campaigns. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, under the Trump administration, there are a lot of people that uh, have a hard time believing this on the left. Uh, but the water was as clean as it's ever been, and the air was cleaner than it's ever been. And um, a lot of that was driven by technological advances, uh, particularly uh, the adaptation and use of natural gas, which is the cleanest uh, uh, fossil fuel there is. And um, so that it's um, we won't get into all that discussion about uh, electric versus natural gas and all that this morning. Uh, but uh, but if you look at the stats on the environment, uh, they're, they're as strong as they have ever been. Well, those facts hurt my feelings, so we're just going to – we'll ignore those and just move on. Congressman David <laughs> Rouser is our, our guest here this morning. You mentioned uh, renourishment, Congressman Rouser. That's a, a real hot issue here across southeastern North Carolina. And a rule change a couple of years ago with the new administration, especially, especially for uh, areas like Wrightsville and Carolina Beach, make that process a little bit different where they're not able to, to dredge up certain areas. Has there been any movement on that, or is that something you're going to be pushing for in this committee so that they can get the beach renourishment at a, at a cheaper price in a more effective manner? Yeah, I have a te technical fix that uh, I dropped the other day. I, I had this legislative language last Congress, but... Uh, the environmental groups are uh, uh, terribly opposed to it, and so we weren't able to get anywhere with it through the House last year, given uh, the Democrats uh, had the majority in, in control of the gavel. Uh, but this Congress, uh, I anticipate, uh, will be able to get it through on the House. Still going to need Democrat support for it, though, because you've got to get it through the U.S. Senate. And uh, so hopefully we can we can work through the issues there. Um, you know, for, for background, for the broader audience that may not uh, follow this or know the particulars of it. Uh, the bottom line is there's a uh, law on the books called the COBRA, uh, or referred to as COBRA. It's the Coastal Barrier Resources Act. And uh, under that law, technically, you are not allowed to take sand uh, from a COBRA area or a COBRA zone. And it just so happens that uh, Masonboro Inlet, where the sand uh, has historically, for more than 50 years, uh, been taken from that inlet and put back on the beach uh, under a new interpretation uh, with this administration. Uh, they said you can't take sand, any sand uh, that's uh, from any part of the Cobra Zone and put it on the beach. You've got to find an offshore bar site. Well, in the case of Wrightsville Beach, the offshore bar site that was identified has thousands and thousands and thousands of rubber tires that were put out there by the Fish and Wildlife Service back in the 1970s, uh, interconnected with the chain 
that uh, was designed or intended to be a nice uh, fish estuary. It didn't quite work out that way, as many government initiatives don't. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the Army Corps gets out there and uh, starts looking around and says, oh, my gosh, we didn't realize we got thousands and thousands of tires. They do think they have uh, one beach renourishment cycle out of that site. Uh, but because of all those tires, everything is tremendously delayed. Now, Carolina Beach and Curie Beach, on the other hand, they had an offshore bar site that was already approved, uh, no tire issue, and so they were able to get their beaches uh, renourished uh, not too long ago. So that's uh, that's why there's a discrepancy there, just so folks uh, understand. Yeah, and the Carolina Beach one happening happening last year, and you know, you talk about the the Mason Bro, that's kind of that in the past has kind of killed two birds with one stone. You dredge out the inlet so boats can travel through and you get the beach renourished. And uh, unfortunately, that's right. As of right now, that's, that's not happening. Uh, Congressman David Rouser is our, uh, our guest here this morning. Let's uh, transition over to the uh, overall greater agenda for the 118th Congress. How do you see everything playing out? Well, we're going to have a lot of oversight hearings, investigative hearings, um, you know, coming up soon. Uh, you're going to see in the oversight committee specifically, uh, hearings on uh, the border uh, or the lack of a border that we now have. Uh, they got Border Patrol agents who are going to come in and testify to the real facts on the ground uh, that much of the very liberal news media doesn't want to report. Uh, you'll also see them hold hearings on uh, COVID-19 uh, spending uh, relief, uh, waste, fraud, and abuse uh, related to those programs that, that, need, that needs to be highlighted. Uh, the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, you're going to see hearings soon on the origins of COVID uh, and China's role in that. Uh, on the Foreign Affairs Committee, you're going to see uh, a pretty deep dive on the uh, botched withdrawal uh, and terrible withdrawal, um, irresponsible withdrawal of troops uh, from uh, Afghanistan. And um, so really this year and next year, uh, one of the main agenda items is to showcase the truth, uh, to make sure the truth is uh, is brought forward on all of these subjects. Um, I note uh, one of the subcommittees, I forget which one it, it is uh, precisely, I think it's going to be on, on oversight, I would suspect, uh, they're going to be investigating Twitter and Twitter's suppression of uh, particular stories uh, previous to the election. Uh, that uh, were directly related to uh, uh, Hunter's uh, laptop. And there's a lot come out uh, yet about all that. And uh, so one of the main focuses is, is going to be on uh, uh, these investigative hearings. It's important to note, though, that Congress does not have the authority to prosecute, uh, but we sure, certainly <clears throat> have a constitutional duty of, of oversight, uh, and you do that through hearings, uh, through the use of subpoena if you need to, um, and the production of documents uh, for the American public and, uh, and all to see uh, so that we bring some transparency. And with transparency, you bring some accountability uh, to the executive branch. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of work in that, era, in, in that arena. Uh, you're also going to see in the T&I committee, for example, uh, we're going to um, put forward a, um, what they call a Congressional Review Act uh, that will uh, repeal the uh, new Lotus uh, definition uh, rule that was recently uh, put out by the administration. And this uh, has wide-ranging effects for homeowners, uh, for home builders, uh, for farmers, for any business. Uh, basically, a federal bureaucrat's going to be able to determine what's a wetland uh, 
uh, and it's a very subjective uh, criteria uh, that they have laid out. And uh, when you have uh, bureaucrats and subjective criteria, uh, you, you tend to have a tremendous amount of uh, government overreach. Uh, so we're going to be repealing that rule in the House. Hopefully we'll have the support even among a uh, Democrat Senate, uh, Democrat-controlled Senate, uh, to get that through as well, because I think Manchin and Cinema are probably going to be with us on this uh, on this uh, CRA. Uh, it remains to be seen whether Biden will uh, sign it or, or uh, veto it. I suspect he'll probably veto it, but at least people will know uh, which side uh, everybody's on. Um, in the Ag Committee, we have uh, the Farm Bill coming up. Uh, Farm Bill expires in 2023, and you may not think that uh, agriculture affects you in much way, but if you eat uh, and you like to eat three times a day, you, it, uh, it does have a direct uh, impact on your, on your life when you think about it. Um, the farm programs and the safety net in place for our farmers, particularly uh, uh, when you consider that they're oftentimes competing against foreign actors uh, that are heavily subsidized, it's not a level playing field. Uh, it uh, manipulates prices in a way that the market uh, ordinarily would not bear. And then, then, of course, you have hurricane storms, floods, et cetera, uh, that you have to deal with in the agriculture space as well. Uh, so it really is important to have a good, strong uh, safety net for agriculture. We'll be uh, focused on that. And, of course, one of the uh, – I'll finish with this – one of the big fights uh, that's going to come up and is very important for the future – is this fight over the debt ceiling. Mm. Uh, the debt ceiling, basically, uh, that's what allows us to pay our bills. Uh, you know, the spending has already accrued. Um, if you don't raise the debt ceiling, you basically are not paying your bills, and you end up uh, downgrading the credit rating of the United States. Uh, the markets would be in turmoil, and, you know, it, it would not be a good thing. But historically, uh, the eight major changes to uh, uh, spending have been made in concert uh, with uh, a lifting of the uh, debt ceiling. You know, there's a lot of Democrats that won't take debt ceiling off the table. They just want to continue to spend, spend, spend. We don't want to do that. We want to use the debt ceiling as a leverage point uh, to make sure that we get some long-term spending reforms so that we can eventually get control of the $31 trillion debt. Uh, you know, the last two years, we basically spent $10 trillion more than we ordinarily would have. $10 trillion. If you just pause for a moment and think about what that means, we have a $31 trillion debt. Last two years alone, we spent $10 trillion more than we ordinarily would have. And uh, not all that. It's one thing if that money is for investment purposes, infrastructure, roads, bridges, things that will generate an economic return. Uh, but a lot of that money was not uh, for investment purposes. A lot of that money was consumption. Uh, a lot of that money was paying people not to work. Uh, which workforce is going to be a major issue of this Congress, too, uh, highlighting the supply chain uh, disruptions that have been caused uh, by lack of uh, uh, workers and worker shortage. Uh, that's a big issue we need to address long term. Uh, so all these areas are going to be in focus. Uh, there's going to be a lot of activity. It's important to note, though, that what gets through the House uh, is not always, in fact, most of the time, is not what is uh, passed in the Senate especially when you're in a divided government. Uh, but uh, uh, this, I can tell you, uh, because we have a divided government, uh, you know, the Biden White House and the Democrat Senate are not going to be able uh, to uh, pass legislative items that are bad for the country. Uh, you know, the Republican firewall in the House, since we have the majority, uh, all that is dead on arrival. 
Uh, the $10 trillion I just referenced, if we'd had one of the two chambers the last time around, uh, the last two years, uh, uh, you know, none of that bad legislation would have been passed. And so that's, uh, that's, how you ha- that's the prism you need to look through uh, as you evaluate uh, this Congress with a divided government. Hopefully after the 2024 election, uh, Republicans will have the White House, we'll have the Senate back, majority in the Senate back, and keep our uh, majority in the House. And then we can start doing some proactive things to reverse uh, the negativity of, of uh, the previous years. Congressman David Rouser is our guest here this morning. Congressman Rouser, hang on for me if you would real quick. i got to grab a quick commercial break. On the other side, I want to talk about the increasing threat from the Chinese Communist Party. If it's not the strategic oil preserve, it's uh, the large amounts of land that are being purchased by the Chinese government and their entities. We'll have that conversation with Congressman David Rouser coming up right after this. Welcome back to the program. Congressman David Rouser joins us live this morning talking about the ongoings in the 118th Congress. And Congressman Rouser, there's a big push, and I have heard I heard an interesting interview with uh, Mike Pompeo a couple of days ago talking about the increase in the Chinese Communist Party here in the United States. If it's not our institutions, they're buying our oil, and then they're buying our land. That's pretty concerning. Well, that's right, and... Um you know, they, the worst thing this country and, and all the others ever did was allow China to um, uh, become a member of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, uh, back, in the, back in the mid-90s. And, you know, back then the philosophy was if we just trade with China, uh, you know, the Communist Party will change their ways. And, you know, the people, uh, the Chinese people will, uh, you know, force a change because they'll see how great it is, <clears throat> uh, you know, in the democratic uh, uh, countries uh, worldwide, particularly America, uh, well, all we really did uh, was we gave food and energy uh, in more ways than one, literally and figuratively, uh, to uh, the Communist Chinese Party. And over the years, they have infiltrated uh, this country through a number of different means. Uh, and of course, one aspect that's become very alarming um, in recent years is the uh, uh, purchase of farmland, particularly near very sensitive uh, mili- military um, uh, bases around the country. Uh, so my uh, good friend and colleague Dan Newhouse, myself, and others are co-sponsors of uh, of a bill uh, to uh, prohibit that. And uh, it really is a, uh, uh, if you look at the total amount of acreage, I don't remember it right off the top of my head, but it's substantial. Yeah. Uh, and Typically, uh, they purchase in those um, those areas that are in close proximity uh, to uh, very important uh, military bases and other uh, key important uh, uh, and national strategic um, uh, you know operations that we have in our own country. Uh, when they go and visit congressional offices, when they visit um, uh, the State Department, the Pentagon. Uh, you know, all these offices are swept for bug-in devices uh, because it's just it, it's just well known that uh, you know the Chinese Communist Party uh, uh, plants those. Uh, the use of TikTok, and this is important for our young people to understand. Uh, you know, everything that TikTok uh, accumulates in terms of information about you uh, can be easily accessed by the. Um, uh, communist uh, Chinese Communist Party, absolutely, uh, and that later on uh, could very well be used to manipulate you in in some way. Uh, that's the one thing that um, uh, we have to be cognizant of today. That just a few years ago we didn't, 
uh, that iPhone you have, that Android you have, uh, all those apps that you use on a daily basis, they're collecting information about you. That's why when you mention uh, you want to buy new curtains for the living room, all of a sudden you start getting ads for curtains in the living room. <laughs> uh, or, you know, outdoor patio uh, uh, furniture, et cetera. Whatever it is you're talking about, that phone is absorbing all that information. Congressman, Whatever you search, that phone is absorbing all that information. Congressman David Rouser is our guest here this morning. Congressman Rouser, congratulations on the reelection. Congratulations on the... Uh- Every week, Michael Rosenbaum is getting deep with someone new on the Inside of You podcast. Let's get inside of Shelly Hennick. So Obliterated's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I had the best time. That's it was great. challenging, but it was like the show. That doesn't always happen. Everybody's trying to make a show and you're this not. This was a dream. It's no fun. Genuinely. That's and if it beautiful. wasn't, I would just keep my mouth shut and talk about something else. Yeah, like, it like, was, hey, it was fine. Because yes. I've done that. I've asked people and they're like, you know. Yeah. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Wherever you listen chairmanship for the uh, water resources environmental subcommittee and we'll catch up with you real soon great to be with you take care thanks sir appreciate your time as always congressman david rouser here representing the seventh district of north carolina in washington dc a lot on his plate a lot on the agenda for republicans it ought to be an interesting two years more wilmington's morning news coming up after this Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. My name is Nick Craig. Thanks for spending some time with us here this morning. We know that there are some serious problems ongoing with our in our education system right now. And one of the biggest, outside of what we've seen the last couple of years, and I, I truly believe this, and I have advocated for this, I will continue to advocate for this and, and challenge our elected officials here locally and across the state, is that for individuals that are going through middle school and high school, there seemingly is only one path after that. And that path is an expensive four-year degree. Now, for some individuals, that is exactly what they need. That's exactly what they want. And that will be fulfilling for them for the rest of their lives. But for many, many students, myself included, that was not the path. And fortunately, I had the wherewithal when I you know, was in a, a, you know, junior, senior year of high school to uh, not, ne- not that anybody was trying to trick me or trap me, but I was very much encouraged to get into a four-year program to commit to a school. And, and you know, as again, you're a junior, you're 16, 17, 18 years old, committing to a four-year program at a school and a degree that you might not even necessarily be interested in. And that is a big, big problem. Because for somebody like myself, my solution was two years at a community college, got a technical degree in computer science, and then I started my career. And I've ping-ponged all over the place, done a whole bunch of different things in my short time. But that wasn't my path. My path wasn't four years in a state school. just wasn't. Well, fortunately, career and technical education programs in public schools across North Carolina are going to be getting a boost of money. In total, about $3 million in new funding for 2023. That was announced yesterday by State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Catherine Truitt. 
The funds will flow through two state government grant programs passed by the North Carolina General Assembly in the last budget. $2 million for CTE modernization and support in grades 6th through 8th and $1 million for ancillary items necessary for those CTE programs. CTE is career and technical education. CTE programs in public schools are geared toward making students aware of alternative career tracks. There are currently 931,801 CTE participants in the state of North Carolina. So about, you know, just under about a million or so students that take part in CTE programs across the state. Catherine Truitt said in a statement, quote, I want all students to pursue the post-secondary plan of their choice with confidence, and I want them to feel empowered by their knowledge and the paths before them. My hope is that these grants will help districts across the state continue to advance their career and technical education opportunities and help teachers and other educators ensure that students are exposed to the widest range of careers available to them and begin learning the skills they need to be successful. And for some reason, which I think I know the reason, CTE and some of these programs, and not, not necessarily here in North Carolina, but I can speak of you know, in New York and in many other states, are really kind of looked down upon. They're not encouraged by guidance counselors and by school officials and by you know, educators. I think it's pretty clear for an educator if a, if a student is interested, potentially interested in a four-year education or not. And I would hope, and in many cases, I would assume that an educator does encourage a student, you know, a teenager, to look at some of these CTE programs. Because there are so many great benefits. So many great benefits. Funding priorities were reportedly given to districts with at least one school that received low wealth supplemental funding in the previous fiscal year in dig- districts with large populations of at-risk students or students with disabilities. Now, the way that this breaks down for the schools here across southeastern North Carolina, and again, I want to note, this is $3 million throughout the entire state. So you've got all of these school districts that are you know, vying for it, so the money amounts aren't huge. Over in Brunswick County, they're slated to get just about just over $13,000, $13,681 through this program. New Hanover County Schools slated to get $44,000 through this program. And Pender County Schools uh, receiving the largest sum of money here throughout southeastern North Carolina with $45,000 for these programs. Now, as part of this announcement yesterday, the superintendent, the uh, the Department of Public Instruction released some information as examples of programs that could be included in this funding. For example, building a greenhouse and purchasing livestock for agricultural education programs, career exploration and planning programs at middle school, uh, purchasing the necessary tools and equipments such as food safety and preparation materials for culinary arts programs. Labs, lab and 3D autonomy equipment for health sciences, 
welding and other modern tools for construction trades and drones for transportation and public safety. That was just a list of some examples of some of these CTE programs that are being uh, that you know that could potentially be offered. And when you look at this money, you know, forty four thousand dollars, you might think, well, that's not a lot of money. How is that going to help? Well, if you're a school district or a school and you want to bring forward a welding program, $44,000 will buy you a lot of equipment. That's not going to buy you the top of the line equipment. You're not going to be able to have the, you know, the Mercedes Benz of every single piece of welding equipment, but you could most definitely offer some of that in a school. And when you look at why this is such a, you know, why, why this is so important, I pulled this article last night from Forbes, and it looks at the 2023 student debt statistics, and these numbers are staggering. There's $1.75 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. The average borrower, the average loan, is $28,950. Talking about an average debt of $29,000. It's a lot of money. 55% of students from four-year institutions had student loans, while 57% of students from private nonprofit four-year institutions took out educational debts as well. That's a lot of money. And again, that's the average is $29,000. And think about how many individuals have small loans for community colleges at five or ten or $15,000. Imagine that. And then average that the average is $29,000. Because according to this Forbes study, the average for in-state tuition is about $10,000. For private or nonprofit institutions, you're looking at about $38,000. And we know how big of a burden that is long term. It is one of the, I truly believe this. It is one of the greatest disservices that we have done in this country. Student loans, student debt, and crippling. This this crippling debt is one of the biggest disservices that we've done in this country to the next generation. I stand by that wholeheartedly, 100%. I'm very passionate about this issue. We are setting up a generation for, we're almost, we're almost setting them up for failure. And I don't say that lightly. When you've got an individual who is graduating from a four-year school with, let's just call it $35,000 in student loan payments, that is an incredible amount of debt to have on your balance sheet right off the books, right off the bat. And at this point, you're what, 20, 22, 23, 24 years old, depending on how long it took you to go through your program. So now you're just out of school. You've got $35,000 in student loan debt if you're lucky. Now you've got to get into an entry-level job in your career, right, because you're immediately not hired and making the max salary in your career path because you don't have any experience. So you started an entry-level job in your profession making most definitely less than your worth and less than you spent for your education. And now you need to figure out housing. 
and everything else associated with it. And it is an incredible burden, an incredible burden. But that's what, for whatever reason, that is what middle and high schools have encouraged. And and the reason is pretty clear because institutions of, quote, higher learning are just running a gambit, running a racket with the federal government. And it's just a huge, huge disservice to the next generation when they're thought, when they're essentially told this is the only path forward. You're only, unless you're going to be a loser, your only solution is to go to school, get crippling amounts of student loan debt in a degree you probably don't even want. Because if not, if trades for whatever reason are looked down upon, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Which would explain why we have $1.75 trillion in student loan debt. And many of those degrees aren't even employable. Dave Ramsey always says, yo, you've got $75,000 in student loan debt and you've got a degree in underwater basket weaving. Oh, great. Really employable. So now you're working retail. Trying to pay off $75,000 in student loan debt. For a degree that is unemployable. It's, it's such a shame. So I'm, I'm very encouraged to hear that the Department of Public Instruction Superintendent Catherine Truitt, as well as the General Assembly who made this money available and others are, are pushing forward these programs and these ideas. It is critical, absolutely critical to the work to workforce development and to the future of a you know a, a prosperous society. There's no argument there. 9107634000 is our phone number. Let's grab a uh, phone call this morning. Call you're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning. And you you nailed it perfectly. When you go to school for one of those worthless degrees and then you come out I have a degree in left-handed Renaissance painters, and you're mad that you can't get a job. <laughs> that's a good one. Well, that's on you. Now, my son graduated from NC State, and with a degree in civil engineering, the place he interned his senior year, they said, we want to hire you as soon as you graduate. So he walked from across the stage and right into a full-time job, Fantastic. well-paying job, because he, he went into a field that was marketable. Now he does. He has student loan debt because, again, it was NC State. Uh, and certain things you mentioned, he's an engineer. Certain things you're going to have to go and get a degree for. I mean, that's just something that you can't just show up one day and be like, "Oh, I watched some YouTube videos. I'm an engineer now." That's that's not how it works. Very, very true. And because it's a marketable, in demand field, he he scored. But yeah, you. you but get let one me of say these this: useless degrees. Let, let me let me clap back on one thing that you said. You said it's these students getting these degrees. There is some blame there, for sure. But there's also, I think, some level of blame that needs to be put on individuals in middle and high school that encourage this. And these educa- and these institutions of higher learning that even offer these degree programs. I mean, again, you're talking about 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. And they're being told that your solution, your only path going forward, unless you want to be one of those weird people that gets a trade skill or goes to a community college, your only solution is this. That's a huge disservice. Yes, very true. And how I am one of those uh, community college, and I I like to consider myself a success story. Uh, Have a uh, actually two associate's degrees, and I, I work in the IT field, and I'm I'm doing very well for myself. 
Well, I, uh, as a, also an associate's degree in uh, computer information systems and previously working in, in technology, I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. It's, a, it, it's just amazing that it is so looked down upon. I, I appreciate your call this morning, sir. Thanks for listening to the program. And congrats to your son, who obviously understands that, hey, this is the way it works. I'm going to go and get a degree. Uh, I got, I'm going to have to get a degree that's, oh, I don't know, marketable. A degree that will pay me a salary that is in line and makes sense to pay off this debt that I've just income, you know, just uh, taken on. It'd be the equivalent of buying a shack on the side of the road for a million and a half dollars when it's only worth about twenty five thousand dollars. Nobody is going to get. It wouldn't make sense to get a loan for a million and a half dollars on something that's not worth it. You'll never make your money back. You'll never be able to pay for it. After we grab this quick commercial break, I pulled this uh, study from the Universal Technical Institute about the top trades in demand in 2022. I think you'll find that pretty remarkable. We'll have those details, plus your phone calls and text messages at 910-763-4000. Coming right up. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News as we look at encouraging individuals in middle and high school to potentially go into the trades instead of uh, forcing them to think that the only solution, the only success that they'll have in their lives will be to go to a four-year school. I pulled this report from the uh, group called the Universal Technical Institute, or UTI, and they listed their top trade demands for the year 2022, and they included the following, welder, diesel technician, aircraft mechanic, HVAC technician, home inspector, plumber, electrician, respiratory therapist, construction manager, dental hygienist, licensed practical nurse, an LPN, or a legal assistant. These are some of these trade jobs that are in high demand. And many of these pay very, very well. Now, obviously, when you look at salary information online, it's tough because it, it, it generates all over it's all over the place but just looking at one diesel technician which i looked at here in north carolina according to intuit the average salary for a diesel mechanic here in north carolina is fifty thousand five hundred dollars a year that is an incredible trade salary that is a very fruitful career but it's not encouraged. And if for some reason, it's looked down upon. I don't get it. I don't know why the measurement of success in life or the measurement of, uh, you know, measurement of, of um, intelligence is whether or not you can go to a four-year school and get a degree. It, it just it doesn't make sense. It just, I don't get it. When you've got these very, very successful careers and very fruitful careers, very profitable careers that are right in front of us. They're right here. And they're needed. They're hurting 
for staff. They're hurting for people with these skills. You don't believe me? Call a local HVAC company and see how long it takes for them to get to your house. I booked out weeks because they're short-staffed. They don't have the manpower. We really need to make sure, and I'll continue to encourage our local elected officials and the Board of Education and folks in the General Assembly to continue to encourage this progr- these programs known as CTE, Career and Technical Education. They have to be encouraged. They have to be talked about as an alternative because a four-year school is not for everybody. It's not. It wasn't for me. It just wasn't. It wasn't in my playbook. And I'm glad that I had some encouragement that getting an associate's degree at a community college could lead to a fruitful and successful life and successful career. We've just got to encourage it. We've got a lot more Wilmington's Morning News coming up right after this. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? <laughs> In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What Women Binge, wherever you listen. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. You can text or call in in the program this morning at 910-763-4000. That's 910-763-4000. We've got a lot going on across southeastern North Carolina in the city of Wilmington, and I'm very excited this morning to welcome Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho to our airwaves. And Mayor Sappho, I know that you wanted the Red Hot Chili Peppers to play here at Live Oak Bank Pavilion, but uh, Dave Matthews being announced, that's that's a pretty big get for the Port City. Yeah, good morning. Yes, Nick. That is a, that was a big announcement yesterday, and I believe he's playing two dates back to back, and that's um, just great for our community and for our area to be able to get an artist of Dave's um, statue to be able to come here to Wilmington. And Live Nation had indicated uh, last year, at the end of last year's season, that they felt there was going to be a lot of big names that wanted to play the, the amphitheater because of the iconic nature of it uh, and how many hits it's getting on. On social media, and uh, a lot of the, the, the bigger acts like to play very uh, more intimate uh, settings, and obviously, you know, the Live Oak Bank Pavilion is one of those in the state. So uh, we're very uh, blessed to be able to do that now, be able to bring in the bigger acts, and I think you'll hear bigger names coming in the future. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. Those shows are uh, Tuesday, May the 30th and Wednesday, May the 31st coming up here this year. Tickets go on sale in uh, mid-February. Uh, Mayor Safa, you guys had a late night last night. I had to turn off the uh, live stream of the meeting because I had, had, I had to get some sleep last night. But uh, a large meeting, a large Wilmington City Council meeting, a lot of stuff going on. The the big story being the uh, moving forward with the purchase of the former PPD now Thermo Fisher building. Can you t- tell our listeners here this morning exactly what that process is going to look like and where everything stands right now? Sure, I can. Um, so um, last night, the, the action the city council took last night was to appropriate a half a million dollars and hopefully go into contract sometime today or tomorrow with Thermo Fisher, the old PPD site there, uh, for the purchase of that building. Now, we have 120 days, which is basically four months, 
to evaluate the, the, the purchase of the uh, PPD building to determine if it's the right thing for the, for the city and for the community to move forward with. And there's a lot of questions and a lot of things that we will have to go through in this next 120-day period, assessing all the values of all the buildings that we, the city, are currently in that are scattered throughout the city of Wilmington. I think there's about eight buildings that our uh, staff uh, it, um, resides in all over the community, and then we put them under one roof. We would then, of course, have to evaluate uh, the, the maintenance of the building, how much it would cost to run it and take care of it. Obviously, we have a, a significant amount that we set aside just to maintain our current buildings, which are kind of old and antiquated. Um, we will evaluate the parking situation, how we would internally uh, use that parking, not only for our staff and the people there at the city, but also how do we use it for the amphitheater and other things that are happening up on the north end. Uh, there's a lot of IT stuff that we are having to upgrade. Obviously, we get attacked on our systems like a lot of other uh, uh, entities do, like it happened, uh, I think, last year with the Colonial Terminal. We're constantly being uh, probed and attacked by by people trying to break into our system, our IT system. So that will help us uh, with a lot of the infrastructure that's already in place that the PPD building has. And then finally, the security needs the city has. Obviously, the world has changed in how we secure our buildings. A lot of these buildings are old. Um, and, and so the way we um, allow people to come in and out of the buildings to protect not only the public but the people that work there is also extremely important to us. And then finally, the redevelopment opportunities that we will also be um, looking at. Uh, there's about 3.4 acres to the north of the building and about 3.2 acres to the south of the building. And how we divest ourselves of those properties to put them back into the tax roles and allow the private sector to redevelop those, as well as the eight buildings that we will be vacating. And then finally, we'll have to have go through a process with the local, what they call the Local Government Commission, that's a commission that was set up in the 1930s by the state of North Carolina to evaluate uh, the financial uh, integrity of any uh, deal or anything that the city uh, goes through. That, that goes for every city, every county in the state of North Carolina that does any kind of a large purchase will also have to pass muster with the state treasurer's office and the local government commission and the individuals to sit on that. So we have a lot of work to do in the next 120 days to determine if we will purchase and move forward with it. And then if we do, um, we will then, um, now obviously we'll be at public meeting with public input, and then uh, we will start the process of divesting our, 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 our city of the current buildings that we're in, and then, of course, using that money to then reduce the debt on the purchase of the building. So there's a lot of work to be done. Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho is our guest here this morning. I, I, I found it pretty surprising when this when this report first came out to, to learn how many different buildings the city is currently spread out across the city on. That's got, from a logistical situation, Mr. Mayor. That's that's that can't be the most convenient situation in the world. If you need to meet in person with somebody, you gotta you know, walk a couple blocks or do something like that. It, it's got. It would I assume it'd be nice to have everybody in the same building, just from a collaboration and uh, and uh, you know efficiency standpoint. Sure it would be. And in fact, um, the city has been looking at this for a number of years. I think even in the 90s, there's been a, 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 a needs assessment of office space for the city for quite some time. And we've we've constantly looked at it, looked to upgrade it. Uh, I think last year, we, the city, uh, purchased what we call the Harrelson Building, where the United Bank Building is currently because of our space needs. And that still isn't enough. Um, but um, we started looking at a building that we currently have a lot of our, our employees in at what they call 305 Chestnut Street, which is 
literally adjacent to City Hall, and talking about redoing that building, bringing it down, and just totally redoing it, trying to bring everybody under one roof. And the cost on that was between 90 to $96 million. So we put a hold on that because of the cost. And then the, this building came available, the PPD building, and never in our wildest dreams did we think that we could come close to purchasing that building because of what the tax value is on the entire campus of the PPD property, which is about $141 million. So uh, lo and behold, they approached us. We looked at it. You know, we, we talked amongst ourselves. We said, we think this is a pretty good idea. Let's evaluate it. Then, of course, made it public. And so um, hopefully today, tomorrow, if PPD accepts our offer, it would be somewhere to, to, right at 68, $68 million, a half a million dollars um, deposit down with a study period of 120 days. And then hopefully um, we can move forward and, and move everybody in, in one building. So what's been it, the, it'll uh, be a good thing for our community. Yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to argue that. Let me ask you this. Public comment thus far, I know it's kind of all been, there's been a lot going on over the last couple of days. I know the public hearing that if that was to happen would be later down the road, but I'm sure you've gotten emails and text messages and phone calls. What have you heard thus far from the public? Well, I've heard... I've heard some positive things about it based on the fact of our, our parking needs and our and our and of course our space needs. Obviously, there's there's commentary as to you know would this give us an opportunity to attract um, you know a, a large company with that could put their national headquarters there. Um, we've had discussions about the possibility of, of purchasing some of the property that we currently are residing in. We've already had suitors that have approached the city about possibly trying to buy some of the properties that we currently own as well as some of the properties that are already there. Um, discussions about the financial uh, um, uh, instruments that would be using to purchase this property uh, moving forward, how many people would be evaluating it, um, things such as, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the hurricane, the damage that was done in the PPD building, you know, just to assess that to make certain that whatever we purchase, if we purchase it, what those costs would be if we possibly if we end up in a hurricane situation where we couldn't uh, where where we have some damage there, what it would cost us, or we have some kind of a, a matrix or some kind of a uh, example of what that those costs look like. Uh, so those comments would just keep rolling in here, probably within the next 120 days. Plus, the fact is, there's a lot of questions that are being asked by city council members, uh, in addition to the value of the building that would. And we currently reside in. What's the total square footage of those buildings? How much of the buildings will we be renting out? Um, we obviously we don't need 371,000 square feet, <laughs> but we do need probably half of the building, yeah. which gives us the opportunity to lease the other half of the building. Thermo Fisher has indicated if we move forward with this, there's a good possibility that they will take about two to three of those floors, and then there's ample uh, floors to be able to rent out to other entities and companies that are in the uh, in the area. Plus, the fact is that the county is also purchasing what they call the Bank of America building, working with the community college to build a nursing school there on 3rd Street. And so there'll be a number of tenants that will be vacating that building that could possibly move into this new building if we move forward. So there'll be more questions coming. I'm sure there's more coming this morning and we'll be answering them and looking at each one of those to make sure that we're doing the right thing. The timeline on this is is really tight and you know for for private business mayor South 120 days, you know, 4 months, you know, that's that's not it's quick. It's not the worst thing in the world, but for for government 120 days is a really really quick turnaround time. How are, how is that going to be managed? Obviously, you still have all of the other 
you know, responsibilities of the city going on as well. How is that going to be balanced to making sure that it's as transparent and as open as possible? Well, this probably involves probably about 14 different departments. Wow. So there's obviously finance that will be involved. There will be building maintenance that will be involved. There will be some real estate um, entities that we'll be uh, discussing as far as putting out what they call an RFP or request for proposal to be able to manage maybe some of these space that we'll have. Obviously, working with the local government commission, there'll be a lot of questions that they will be asking us uh, in, in addition to making certain our fire departments and police departments look at the safety apparatus of the building as well as the uh, security uh, going in and out of that building. So, you know, we've got all hands on deck uh, to hopefully um, come to some sort of a conclusion on this. But, you know, so far on paper, what it looks like, it looks like, a, as you said, Nick, a pretty good deal. You know, you know the, the details are always there, and you have to get in there sometimes and look for them. But uh, the, the um, Thermal Fisher has been very open uh, in respect to making, giving us full access to the, to the structure and any paperwork that we need, talking with the maintenance people of the building, making sure that we're addressing all of the specific things that we have as, as council members and as, as mayor. Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho, our guest here this morning. One of those questions that I'm, I'm sure you've heard, uh, Mayor Sappho, is dealing with the Municipal Service District and this piece of property is a large generator of revenue for the MSD. Obviously, you're not going to charge property tax on your own building. That wouldn't make sense at all. Does that? I assume that that's when you have to bring in some of the finance and budget folks to figure out how you can offset those costs and offset those monies? That was a good question, Nick, and it was one of the questions that was asked early on in the discussion because of the amount of revenue that is generated from the campus. What we hope will happen, and, and that's what we're looking at now, part of the financial analysis, is to make certain that we don't hurt the MSD as far as the money that's going into the MSD. Now, make it make sure that it's whole. So there's ample opportunities to make sure that we do that. For example, between 3rd and Front Street, we have been working for now probably the last two to three years, a project called the Gateway Project, which would be a redevelopment of that area uh, between the Wilson Center up to the Isabel Holmes Bridge and assuring that uh, we have an ample amount of private development that takes place there. The city purchased that property years ago uh, for the simple reason that we wanted to control what the entranceway to downtown would look like. And so we're currently in the process of working with a developer that has done prop, um, development for the city before at River Place um, to hopefully go into some sort of a memorandum of understanding moving forward with the redevelopment of that. In addition to the eight buildings that we will be divesting ourselves up, they will also be put back onto the tax rolls. Some of those buildings will probably be demolished and taken down and then redeveloped in some some way with a mixed-use component with you know retail on the first floor and apartments and whatnot. So you know, this we feel that we'll keep the MSD whole, make sure that that um, takes place and, and while we're divesting ourselves of these properties uh, in the meantime. We're chatting with Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho here this morning. Uh, moving on, Mayor Sappho, uh, what else is going on in the uh, the city that folks need to know about? Well, you know, we got a, we, we you know we've been very blessed in the last couple of months, the last uh, probably the last twelve months, we've had an, uh, about fourteen hundred jobs that have been announced uh, that are coming into the into our community. Uh, GE Nuclear, Vanica, Live Oak Bank, Mega Corporation. Uh, you're seeing uh, a lot of logistics um, or uh, warehousing that is building, being built uh, along the 421 corridor. So the outlook for business and business entities moving into our community, into our region, looks pretty good. And um, 
So that continues to tell us as a as a community we're very attractive to a lot of people, as we all can see and feel at times. Um, we're also working in a, in a more regional approach in respect to, you know, how do we start talking about the, these um, very important transportation initiatives that we've been working on for a number of years. We're not city of Wilmington, the county of Hanover are not the only ones that are going. Brunswick County and Pender County are also going extremely fast, and and of course it's also having impacts on our community as people come into the city every day, where a majority of the jobs are, and then of course they go out in the evening. Um, so we've got a lot of transportation initiatives that we have to work on in a regional matter because it affects not only the city of Wilmington, the county of Brunswick, or the county of Pender. And an example of that would be the possible replacement of the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge, which is something that we've been talking about for a number of years. It's an old bridge, and the, the number of cars that are coming over that bridge every single day are, are approaching about 70,000 a day. So we know we, we, we've anticipated that to be the case going back now about 15, 20 years, and so there'll be some significant discussions in the very near future, and has been, about the replacement of the bridge whether it should be told or not, um, you know, what type of a bridge, how does it impact the port, of, the port of, uh, of Wilmington, and then, of course, all the work that's being done out of the port. So there's a lot happening. Every entity that, that we talk to is, is growing in some way, shape, or form. The ports, the universities, the hospital, um, the businesses that are moving into the community, some of the businesses that are already here and expanding their bases of operation. So um, our future in regards to um, economic development and job creation looks very good and, and very bright. Yeah, not only in the city of Wilmington, the state of North Carolina, red hot right now. We're a survey out yesterday. It's the number one, the second place for relocation for uh, individuals within the country. Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho joining us here this morning. Mayor Sappho, for folks that want to reach out to either you or other members of the city council to voice their opinions on something uh, either for or against it, what's the best place and way for them to do that? Well, they can obviously go online and, 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 and share a comment with, with, uh, with us. That's one way. It's, it's, it's pretty easy. The other way, they can call the, the, the office, uh, 910-341-7815. Uh, that's another way you can contact us. Or you can do it by some people, believe it or not, still do s slow mail. So uh, <laughs> they still send us letters from time to time. But, but you can go online. You, you, each one of us has our own <clears throat> our own. Um, a website or a way you can contact us uh, through um, email and you can contact us that way. Mayor Sappho. We will be having some public meetings or public comment periods so they'll have an opportunity to do that also. Oh, perfect. Well, now, when we find out about those public comment periods, we'd love to hear more about that. Uh, Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho, our guest here this morning. Mayor Sappho, uh, thanks for the time. Thanks for the information and uh, really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho joining us this morning after a very, very informative city council meeting last night surrounding the purchase, a, as you heard from the mayor, a six potentially $68 million purchase of the former PPD, now Thermo Fisher building in the north end of downtown Wilmington. Very, very tight timeline. There's going to be a lot of move, 14 departments involved, lots of moving pieces, very quick timeline. We'll keep you up to date here on Wilmington's Morning News. Appreciate Mayor Bill Sappho's time this morning. Uh, something that I will continue to encourage all of my listeners to do is to be informed as to when your local government is meeting. 
In the case of New Hanover County, the city council or you know the board of education, most of these groups meet at least twice a month. That's two times a month that you can watch their meetings online. You can go to them in person. You can send email. You can write comments. You can be part of the public comment during the meeting. Now, this part of government is being involved. Part of the civic process is going to these meetings. I get it. Sometimes it's inconvenient. I totally understand. But I'll give you a great example. Tomorrow night, the new Hanover County Board of Education. There is a very controversial policy surrounding transgender sports for middle school students. Do you have a plan to go to that meeting tomorrow night? Because the progressives do. The woke activists will be at that meeting. They'll be yelling and screaming and harassing the Republican now Republican-controlled Board of Education. Folks, this is the civic process. We all have to get together and get involved. Are you ready for hard-hitting observations? Reality remains reality, no matter how hard you try to ignore it. The Ben Shapiro Show brings you all the news you need to know in America today. Again, I'm all here for the pop culture, people dating each other for the press. Ben breaks down the culture and never gives an inch. Every so often, and by every so often, I mean literally every 27 seconds when the producer gets fired. The Ben Shapiro Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. My name is Nick Craig. Thanks for spending some time with us here this morning. The year was 1971. That's when a very infamous book, a book by the name of Rules for Radicals, was released by Saul Alinsky, which, as we are now well aware of, has become essentially the playbook for modern progressive and modern Democrat politics. Many of the things that they do in their community activism, their legis- how they handle themselves from a legislative standpoint, a lot of this comes back to this book, Rules for Radicals. And that has been something that has been a, a huge thorn in the side of the right for many, many years. Well, joining us on the program now is Paul Vallone. He is the author of a book called Rules for Anti-Radicals, a practical handbook for defeating leftism. Paul, good morning. Uh, tell us a little bit about what was on your mind uh, when you put this book together and uh, started the process of put it in, uh, of writing it. Well, thank you, Dick. Thank you for having me. Um, <clears throat> actually, I would disagree with only one minor point. These are not progressives. These are leftists. I am a progressive. I am a liberal, okay, in the classic Jeffersonian sense. All right, these people want nothing more than to control you. But what I basically did was about um, a year and a half ago, I looked for a book for my own people, a training book on tactics to defeat the left. I couldn't find one, frankly. I found books about, you know, uh, Marxism. I found books that were treatises on why the left is wrong, but I didn't find one on practical tactics. So I wrote it, and that's what Rules for um, Anti-Radicals is. It's a practical handbook for defeating leftism, not only in the political arena, but in daily life. Paul Vallone is our guest here this morning. And, uh, Paul, as you crack open the book, it's uh, broken into a couple of different parts. The first part is uh, Boot Camp for Conservative uh, Activists. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, and some of the importance in there. Yeah, people don't realize 
how we got where we are right now. None of this is an accident. Back in the 1930s, um, a, a guy, a, a Marxist intellectual in Europe uh, named Antonio Gramsci created something they called, eventually called the Long March Through the Institutions, namely a multi-generational effort to take over our media, our cultural institutions, and our schools. And I think we would all agree that they have largely succeeded in doing that. And so um, <clears throat> these tactics have been used for generations to basically disassemble American society. One of Saul Alinsky's, I guess, founding principles was that to organize a society, because he called himself a community organizer, as does, you know, did um, Barack Obama, <laughs> so in order to organize a community, you must first disorganize a community, meaning that what you see happening today is not an accident. It's not stupidity. What you see is the disorganization of American society, destroying the present culture in order to create the great socialist utopia that they envisioned. It's so it's pretty amazing when you look at it. And, and you know, Paul, even though uh, I, you and I probably uh, you know we disagree with how they how effective they are doing it, the the uh, the radical left has been very good at using these tactics to uh, to get what they want. Have they not? <laughs> I mean, look at look at the LGBTQIA plus community. All right, we are now debating not whether we should allow you know people of the same gender to engage in sexual behavior we are now allowed we are now debating whether or not we should have children being read pornography by men dressed as women think about that think about how far those people have come all right in advancing their agenda i mean given that scenario i mean what's the worst that could happen right it's pretty amazing, you know, how this stuff, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of this goes back to the to the 30s and 40s, but specifically, and, and that's where, you know, a lot of the groundwork has been laid over the last 40 or 50 years or so. But, you know, it seems like this stuff is is, is happening quicker and quicker now. And, and Paul, for, for a large part of it, you know, conservatives and Republicans, they've got, you know, they've got their day jobs. They've, they're working on their family. They don't have as much time to get involved. But uh, it seems like that ship has kind of sailed. And if folks aren't willing to get engaged and get involved, then this stuff's only going to continue. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, matter of fact, you know, I say this in the book, one of our flaws, one of our I guess, failings as conservatives, is that we don't want to control other people. And so when we win an election, be it Ronald Reagan or be it the Republican Revolution in 1994 or the 2000 elections, when we win, <clears throat> we assume that everything's fine and we go back to mowing the lawn and watching football. <laughs> Not so the left. Win, lose, or draw, they are always planning for the next step. And the difference is, that we as conservatives don't want to control people, and they do, all right? I tell people that, you know, I, I hear this all the time. You know, I don't do politics. Well, you know, I say, that's fine. You don't have to, obviously. It's your choice. But if you don't do politics, 
I can assure you that politics will do you. Yeah, in one, sh- one, uh, one way, shape, or form, uh, Paul, you will get done by politics, <laughs> whether, whether you like yep. it or not. Paul Valone is our guest right. this morning. He's the author of Rules for Anti-Radicals, a practical handbook for defeating leftism. So we talked about this you know, boot camp for conservative activists. Then we get into some of the tools and tactics. What are those? Well, basically, I wrote the book in three parts. All right, The first is to bring people up to speed on how we got where we are. The second part of the book, Tools and Tactics, does it basically gives people instruction on how to get more involved. Um, tools and Tactics is everything I've learned over almost three decades now of basically being the tar on the left. Um, how to run legislative stuff. How to um, basically I divide action into four categories. Uh, we have the cheapest and easiest is economic action, uh, like what was done against Disney when they tried to push their LGBTQ agenda in Florida. Then we have um, political action, um, which includes or legis- yeah, political action, which includes both legislation and election action. Then we have legal action, which I'm doing a lot of lately because frankly, in the Second Amendment community, the um, Bruin decision from the Supreme Court has been quite a gift to us. And then finally, we have um, basically a catch-all I call non-legislative action, which includes a variety of tactics that support the other three. The thing is, you need to know what your objectives are and the best tactics for going about achieving them. Paul, you mentioned your 30 years of, of uh, activism in various forms. We've talked with you before about some of your Second Amendment gun right activism. Can you just briefly touch on that and some of the things you've learned that you were able to then bring into this book and expand that into other assets besides 2A? Sure. Um, back in 1994, um, I looked for an, an organization to run a, a rally for the Second Amendment at that point in time. I thought that was an effective means of political activism. I know better now. But in any case, the result wound up being grassroots North Carolina, which for 29 years has been the state's primary gun rights organization. But during that period of time, um, partially because I was trained by other conservative political activists and partially because I developed tactics myself, I began to learn that the left, basically, in its quest to control American society, needed to be defeated. And so I actually sat down and put together over the decades tactics on how to do that. And that's what I put in the book. All right. And again, it's not just for dedicated political activists. This book is for Joe Average Citizen, who is being beaten down by the woke mob in daily life. Our guest this morning is Paul Valone. His book, Rules for Anti-Radicals. You said something really interesting there, Paul, that, that caught my peri- uh, my interest. You said 29 years ago that you wanted to host a rally for 2A and that you've known better. Can you briefly touch on that? Because I think a lot of folks may be uh, kind of fooled by the idea that getting together 15 people to stand on the side of the road and hold up a sign is an effective form of political activism. You're seemingly mm-hmm. indicating it's not? Well, I'm not telling them not all right. But here's the thing. Back in 2000, 
19 after Virginia lost their their statewide elections um, <clears throat> because they run statewide elections in off years. It's a very strange political system. But what they did is they organized a huge rally. There were probably, I, I have no idea how many thousands of people were there. They, they overwhelmed Richmond. And by the time they were done, nothing had changed. The Democrats still pushed the same gun control agenda that they would have otherwise, since they took over the state legislature. They passed all but one of the same laws. So <clears throat> what I, and people told me, they, they said, well, we need to hold a rally like this in North Carolina. That was in 2019. And I said, I got two choices. Either I can hold a rally, spend all my time, money, and resources doing that, or I can win the 2020 elections. And obviously, we chose the latter, and we won, all right, in 2020 and in 2022. Everybody goes, oh, yeah, a red ripple around the United States in 2022. Well, yes, it was, but not in North Carolina. We won. Yeah, we not only won. I mean, the Republicans in this state handedly won races. I mean, you've got now a Republican majority in the Supreme Court or a supermajority in the Senate, one vote shy in the House. The appeals court is now controlled by the conservatives. It's it's remarkable. This is the the best thing of the best thing is the control of the courts. Mm. We finally wrested control of the North Carolina Supreme Court from the Democrats. We are now a five two majority uh I'm sorry, yeah, uh, in the in the North Carolina Supreme Court, and we also control the North Carolina Court of Appeals. These are very important things. They are very important. Uh, Paul Valone is our guest this morning. Paul, hang on for me if you would. i got to grab a quick commercial break here. I want to talk about part three of your book, Rules for Anti-Radicals, which, which deals with these grassroots organizations for folks that are you know, in it for, for long haul, folks that want to put some of this stuff together and some tips for them. We'll have more conversation with Paul Valone coming up right after this. You know how important it is to get involved in the political process. We're joined this morning by Paul Valone. His book, Rules for Anti-Radicals, a practical handbook for defeating leftism. And, Paul, we've gone over the first two parts here, this boot camp for the conservative activists, the uh, tools and tactics. And then the third part here, and I would argue one of the most important, is the uh, grassroots organization and either getting involved in these grassroots groups or or starting one yourself. What can folks find in that uh, part three of that book? Well, thanks, Nick. Um, I had a guy come up to me at a prepper conference at one point where I was selling books and I'd done a seminar. And he said, you know, the school board just won't listen to me. They're continuing to to basically give pornography to children. And I said, so what has your group done? And he's like, group? No, it's just me. That's your problem. The fact that it's just you. All right. Patrick Buchanan once called his supporters the peasants with pitchforks. Those are the people who will succeed. Only by organizing large numbers of people to beat the daylight out of your school board or your county commission or whatever the body happens to be, only when you can do that will they begin to listen. And so on part three of the book, for people who have decided to get more involved and they're in it for the long term, I tell them, how they can organize people to create, I guess, the momentum for political organizations that they're looking for. 
Let me ask you this, Paul, because I want to go back to a little bit of this, uh, what we were talking about before the break surrounding the, you know, the rallies and some of those things. How do you how do you judge and how do you gauge whether this group you've put together, if it's you know a couple of people or if it's a larger organization, how do you gauge the effectiveness? Do you have anything in here that, that helps with that? Uh, how do I gauge the effectiveness? Um, well, you gauge the effectiveness by how your target responds. Let's assume for a moment the target is a politician. Sure. Uh, first, he will ignore you, and it's hard to gauge your effectiveness then. But the next step, he will begin to whine, all right? He will begin to uh, complain that you're hurting your own cause. Um, if he does, if you continue to pressure him, he will vote against you. Uh, the, the bottom line is there, there's a series of predictable responses okay to your uh, to your efforts and the fact is the more they whine rather than turning off the heat you step up the heat and actually increase the pressure on the politician tell folks uh, paul where they can find the the book and the whole, the name of it again absolutely you can get it on amazon.com of course and uh, um that's it's always available there but uh my website is rules for anti-radicals Dot com. Rules for antiradicals.com. They can get a copy of the book. I've also got some uh, virtual seminars they can pick up and a variety of other things. There's a blog on uh, basically current topics with political action. So rules for antiradicals.com. Well, Paul, thanks not only for the book. I've been uh, had the opportunity to read through a little bit of it uh, over the last couple of days, but also for your work with uh, GRNC, Grassroots North Carolina, and we'll continue to keep up to date with uh, all the stuff ongoing within the Second Amendment here in the state. Appreciate your time this morning. And I thank you for helping get the word out, sir. Absolutely. My pleasure. Paul Vallone joining us this morning. His book, Rules for Anti-Radicals, a practical handbook for defeating leftism. What a powerful tool. And I love the final part of that conversation there with Paul about these groups. And I I mean, you can look at examples. He used the school board. Take a great look at what's happened with our local school board. Look at the various activist groups that have shown up to meetings over and over again and have gotten their way. Specifically with things like seclusion rooms and suspensions and things of that nature. That's been effective for them. Very effective. Now, it hasn't been on, it hasn't, that's not, they're not a a conservative or a Republican group, but it obviously works. And the idea that putting all of your eggs in the basket of standing on the street corner waving a flag and how that's going to have, you know, a massive influx on an election or a huge impact on, on getting anything done. Well, as you know, Paul's a subject matter expert in the group GRNC. They've been doing this stuff for nearly 30 years. And he very clearly states it's not. That doesn't mean that a rally isn't an important thing to do. That doesn't mean that, you know, being physically seen and being out there isn't important. I'm not, I don't think anybody's indicating that. But it doesn't stop with that. That can't be your first and only thing that you do. If, if that's the case then you're probably not going to be very effective. I'm just calling it for what it is. That's the reality. You can disagree with it if you want, but I have seen no evidence to to indicate the other thing.
or that that it's any other way or it's any different. The biggest takeaway from all of this is that folks on the conservative and Republican side of the aisle have got to get involved more than just during the election. We've got to step up and be part of this stuff more than every two or four years. Because when we don't, and I can tell you this, there's going to be a big battle next Tuesday at the Board of Education meeting over the transgender sports policy in middle school. The left will be using Saul Alinsky's tactics out there to try and intimidate the board to get their way. Will the Republicans show up? Will the conservatives show up and use some of these rules for anti-radicals to push back against this garbage, to push back against this nonsense? Or would they allow the board to sit there and get lambasted while the Republicans are sitting at home watching on YouTube? You know, this is where things and this is how people get involved. It's right here. What's up, folks? Anthony Armstrong here. Bob Popple, along with Super Bowl champion Carl Banks. Hey, NFL fans. This is Solomon Wilcox, former NFL safety and host of the Believe in Bengals podcast. Catch my show and all 32 Believe NFL podcasts. Listen in to former players give their inside perspective on your favorite team. Search Believe, that's B-L-E-A-V, on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. It's always football season, wherever you listen.